read our passage and then I'm going to pray. This is a passage that's very sobering and is from the very lips of Jesus Christ. It's Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for passages like these. This is a hard-hitting passage. These are some of the hardest sayings that Jesus made in his ministry here on earth. And it's hard-hitting because these words are grace-filled. Lord, we thank you that we have escaped hell as believers. But Lord, we also thank you for the sobering reminder of hell and its threat. It is a dangerous place and it represents your lordship over us. We thank you that you are Lord everlasting, the one who dominates the destiny of everyone. And God, we submit ourselves to you. This is a passage about a sin that is so pervasive. And I pray, God, that we would be open to soul search this hour. That, God, you would, you would awaken us to sin in our lives that we could kill and mortify. Help us, God, to be honest with ourselves. To be willing to submit lust to your lordship. In Jesus' name, amen. It's never safe to underestimate the power of the sin of lust. It never is. Jesus, in a few words, is taking commandment number seven from the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery, and he is equating that commandment with not committing lust. He's, he's equating lust with adultery. And he's doing that so that he can target the heart. He can get underneath the surface and get people to deal with what's going on inside of them. We should never underestimate the power of lust. I was uh, made aware, Judy showed me an article in the Anchorage Daily News about a particular sports athlete, a known um, woman. I won't mention her name, but she, she basically, in a kind of widely broadcast sporting event, wore scantily clad, clad, scantily clad clothing where she was revealing herself and doing it in a way where she was saying, look, I was just trying to create an illusion. Well, you know what? Whether she really believed what she said when she said she was creating illusion, an illusion, that choice that she made is one that's very dangerous because lust is very, very powerful and very serious. It's something that rips people apart. It's no illusion. It's something that's going on in people's minds 
when people look at things that they ought not look at and view what they should not take into their hearts. James is very severe in the book of James when he says that people are, each one is carried away and enticed by their own lust. It's something that's happening in the heart and it's like a seed that germinates and once it it germinates, then it is born and once it's born and accomplished, what does it do? It brings forth death. It, It has an effect in the Christian's life where they sense a separation in their fellowship with their God. That's how serious the sin is. Proverbs 6 talks about people being drawn away by women where they are lusting in their hearts and then they ultimately follow through and commit adultery and they are reduced to a loaf of bread. Actually, that's talking about being reduced to the price of a loaf of bread. And we, we are thankful that the Word of God not only talks severely about this sin, but also talks about how there is grace. There is the gospel. But first, before you can get to grace, you have to understand that this is sin. Not just the act of actually committing adultery, but what's going on in your heart well before you get to that stage well before you would do something like that. And then there's grace as well. Once you call it sin, whether in seed form or in action, there's grace in the gospel for deliverance from the guilt of adultery. You know, being on the bear hunt this week, you knew I'd have to get it in there somehow. Being on the bear hunt this week, I thought about this uh, topic because I was in the bear stand basically hunting and creating this sermon in my mind and on these these pages. I actually uh, wrote this out old-fashioned style with pen and ink. There's a little bit of bear blood on the pages, you know, and probably more some deep woods office sprayed over it. But all that to say, I thought about bears and how ferocious they are. What it would be like as I walked down a trail by myself with a gun, unholstered, thinking, okay, you know, something could jump out at me. What would I do? And I thought about how fierce and ferocious bears are. And one person told me, look, they'd been charged two different times, and on both occasions the person raised their gun, you only have time for one shot in that moment, and shot the bear in the nose and killed it dead. And I thought about that in comparison with lust, and I thought, you know, lust is like a bear that's charging you. And God, in this passage, gives you one bullet to kill it with. And the one single bullet that kills lust is Jesus' lordship. Jesus' lordship. His lordship. That's how you kill lust in your life. It's, it's being willing to not overcomplicate matters and over-psychologize what lust is and say, you know what, it's because I was born this way or it's my temperament or how I was raised or this happened to me. Jesus isn't dealing with those things here. He's just saying, listen, I am Lord over this issue. And the single bullet to kill lust is understanding and bowing to Jesus and his lordship. His lordship. So with that, I have kind of a header for our notes. He gives two statements of absolute authority regarding lust. This is Jesus' lordship over lust. 
And the first statement is that Jesus has the authority to convict you of this sin. That's what he's doing here in his teaching. He has the authority to convict you. See, look at verse 27. He says, you've heard it said that it was, you've heard that it was said that you shall not commit adultery. It's a reference to commandment number seven in the Ten Commandments. And what Jesus is doing here here is he's not throwing the law out. He's saying, you've heard it taught to you in a certain way by the rabbis of old. And he's saying the rabbis were keeping commandment number seven on a superficial level. And the rabbis were saying, and the Pharisees were following the rabbis, and they were all saying, listen, as long as you haven't done the act of adultery, you're safe. And Jesus is saying, that's not the case. You're not safe if you haven't done it, if something is going on in your heart. He says, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone, verse 28, who looks at a woman with lustful intent has committed adultery with her in his heart. Already, Jesus is saying, listen, you need to think about this sin in this way. Commandment 7 says you shall not commit adultery. But I'm telling you that adultery first is found in the heart. He's actually marrying up commandment number 7 with commandment number 10, which is you shall not what? Covet. And so when he puts those together, he's saying, look, if you look with lustful intent at someone, this is a guy looking at a gal, a gal looking at a guy, a teenager looking at another teenager, an aged person looking at another aged person. He's saying all bets are off. I'm widening this out as far as it can go, and I'm deepening it as far as I can take it to say if you've coveted someone that you're not supposed to have in your heart, you've done it already. It's not enough to leave it superficial with the rabbis where they're saying, look, thou shalt not commit adultery. Just obey that and you're safe. Jesus is saying, no, no, you're not safe if it's going on in your hearts. That's what he's doing here. So many people then and now want to soften this sin up. I think that's what this sort of, uh, athletic celebrity was doing. She was saying, look, this is really no big deal. I can dress however I want to dress. It's no big deal. It's just an illusion. It's not an illusion. It's slaying people's hearts, believers and unbelievers. It's messing things up for people. You know, keeping this sin on a superficial level, you know what it does? It it leaves a person who actually has committed adultery, it leaves that person hopeless. It does. Because if a person says, I'm safe as long as I don't do it, then when somebody actually does commit adultery, it's as if they're on the outside and they can't get back in. And that's not the case at all. It also creates a false sense of security for those who have not committed adultery, but are committing adultery in their hearts. That's not safe either. It's not safe. The gospel gives hope for those who have committed adultery and for those who are committing adultery in their hearts. You know, Paul must have assumed he was fine as a Pharisee when he was Saul. Romans chapter 7 verse 7 talks about how he had obeyed the law, but then when he came to commandment number 10 and began to meditate it, meditate on it and take it to heart, he was saying, you know what? Covetousness 
where it says, thou shalt not covet, that slayed me. And verse chapter, Romans chapter 7, verse 10 or verse 11 is where Paul says the law at that point killed me. It killed me. It's the idea that Paul knew he had not been faithful in his own heart. Jesus is deepening the law. He's not just taking the law and trying to convict the extreme pervert here. He's using the law of God to go deeper and deeper into the heart. Because people were blowing the law off. They were saying, it really doesn't touch me. And Jesus is also... He's, he's using a scenario where a man is looking at a woman, but the law that's going to the heart here applies to everyone. Young people, singles, should not fornicate in your heart or want something that's not yours to have. You should not be willing to want something so badly that you're desperate and willing to sin to get it. That's what he's saying. There are aged people who struggle with this in their hearts. And I know that you could think, well, it's just, this is just really targeting the men because they're visually stimulated and, um, you know, I'm going to just sort of not take this to heart. But you know what? Every man that commits adultery with a woman finds in that situation a woman who is willing to commit adultery with that man. So both man and woman have something that's going wrong in the heart, and Jesus is diagnosing it here. Both hearts in that scenario are not submitted to the Lord. And also, in our culture, there's such a wave of androgyny. There's so much of a, of a push towards men acting more like women and women acting more like men, where, where gender is not really uh, distinct anymore. That people are sinning in both ways, in both realms all the time. Through visual stimulation or through what they hear. It's happening. And my heart isn't to combat androgyny in our culture or sexual perversion in our culture as much as it is to protect you as the flock. Because as the church, if you stand up and you are known as a pure people, as people who are, who are dealing with this sin honestly who are confessing this sin in appropriate ways to each other and and getting things right, if we're known for that as a church that's filled with gospel hope, then you know what? We're going to stand out in our culture and people are going to want in. Because for some people, as unbelievers, they see the grossness and the decadence of our society and they are repulsed by it because God in his common grace pricks their conscience to say, I can't stand it anymore. I need a place where I can go and be holy. And we need to be a haven of holiness by looking at passages like these. He says, again, if you've done this, you've committed adultery already. And that is just a widening of the net to say, look, everybody has touched this sin. It's actually... Jesus giving grace, because once you call it sin, then there is hope for deliverance, right? Amen? The gospel is real. All right, here's the second statement. We have the first statement where Jesus has authority to convict you. The second statement, Jesus has the authority to punish you. He has the authority to punish you. We find that in verses 29 and 30. It's better for you to lose one of your body parts than to be thrust into 
hell. What is Jesus saying here? He, he repeats it in verse 29 and in verse 30. You know what he's saying? He's saying that he is the Lord over everyone's eternal destiny. One day, all of us are going to stand before the Lord, and those of us who are in Christ are going to be welcomed in, and there are going to be many who think that they are on the narrow road, who are really on the wide road that leads to destruction, and Jesus is going to look at them and say, all the stuff that you were doing doesn't mean that I knew you, and so depart from me, for I never knew you. And Jesus, with these few words, is, is referencing that. He's saying he is the Lord over hell. He's the Lord over everyone's eternal destiny. But you say, okay, well, why did Jesus mention hell here? Wasn't he talking to believers? Wasn't, wasn't this the disciples gathered around the mountainside, and wasn't he talking to them? Why is he mentioning hell? Well, that came to my mind when I was thinking about this passage because I think about this passage as one that can help me to battle lust in my own life, you know, to help me in my own personal walk in holiness. And so why is he mentioning hell? I know I'm not going to hell. Well, first of all, if you look at Matthew 5, verse 1, he's talking to the crowds and he's also talking to the disciples. He's talking to a, a wide array of people. He's talking to believers He's talking to unbelievers in this crowd. He's also talking to people who are Judas Iscariot types. People who think that they're in, but they're really out. People who have faked themselves out. And so he wants to mention hell to sober up the crowd. Because you know what? Lust is a sobering sin. It's a dramatic sin. And so he brings up a dramatic atmosphere. And that is the atmosphere of hell. Believers or unbelievers need to think about this issue of lusting with the hot flames of hell around as an atmosphere. It's that serious of a sin. For unbelievers, this is grace. And when Jesus says, look, if your right eye is causing you to stumble, pluck it out. If your right hand is causing you to sin, cut it off. You know what that is? That's Jesus' call for them to repent for the first time. You know, we're going to be taking the Lord's table in a few moments, and I would just say, look, you know, this is an open table for all believers, and perhaps there's someone in the congregation today who, while I'm preaching, will believe for the first time. And you'll say, you know what? I'm nailed. I am someone who chronically lusts, and that is, that is going to send me to hell. And so instead of following this path to hell, I am going to repent now this morning. And I am willing to do anything because God has put it on my heart to be transformed. And so if, if that's you this morning, I would invite you to participate in the Lord's table as, as a symbol that you have repented for the first time even this morning, that you've entered into grace because that's what these words are meant to do. Jesus is putting hell on the table to wake us up, to get our attention. And for the unbeliever, you need your attention to be awakened. You need to be able to say, look, this is my opportunity to repent. Romans chapter 6 says, when you repent, the vice grip of this sin is loosened. It doesn't all the way go away, but it's dethroned in your life. What used to dominate you is now dethroned and is not anymore dominating you. 
Referencing hell is dramatic, and Jesus wants to wake up the crowd. He wants there to be a gut check. Hell is a very sobering place to think about. It's an eternal realm. It's prepared for people, all people, who are unrepentant. We're all eternal beings. We're going to go one of two places. We're either going to go to heaven forever or we're going to go to hell forever. The Bible calls hell everlasting. It says it's dark. It's a place where there's weeping and grinding of teeth, where people are either grinding in anger or grinding in pain forever and ever. It's a place of utter destruction that goes on and on and on. It's made for people to suffer forever. And Jesus in Matthew 13 says it's a place where the worm does not die. You know what he meant by that? See, in the great white throne judgment, Revelation chapter 20 talks about people being judged according to their deeds. And after they're judged, they are given a resurrection body. They are raised up at that point. John chapter 5 is where Jesus says people will receive a body for life to life or death to death. A resurrection body to life or a resurrection body to death. And when a person is given that resurrection body for death, it means they are fit for hell to suffer forever and ever with a body that will ultimately never completely burn up. And so when Jesus says it's where the worm does not die, he's talking about the idea of a body that is being eaten by worms and the worms will never run out of food because they will continue to feast on flesh that will not ultimately be burned up. That's what he's saying. Hell is horrific and Jesus puts it on the table so that we will recognize that he is Lord and we need that kind of Lord, the Lord over eternity to help us with this sin. Bowing to Jesus' lordship is the only bullet to kill this kind of ferocious sin. It is. But again, why does he mention it for the believer? You say, look, I'm not going to hell. I'm under Romans 8, 1, no condemnation status. So how is that helping me battle my own lust? Let me see if I can bring it closer to your heart. Again, Jesus is trying to train the heart with the law. He's not just looking for superficial obedience. He's looking for you to deal with it on a heart level. And so he wants us to to start with a gut check and say, okay, I'm not going to hell, but I need to battle this sin. And the only way I can battle it is recognizing Jesus' lordship. You know, really hearing about hell ever is always for me like a near-death experience. I remember being a kid and hearing youth pastors preach. And whenever a youth pastor would preach on hell, I would just wake up. Even as an unbeliever, I'd sit there and my ears would perk up. Do you know that experience? It's where, it's where you know, the youth pastor is taught, you know, over and over. And I've heard that before. I've heard that before. I've heard that before. Oh, this is a sermon on hell. Oh, I'm all ears. Why? Well, even as a believer, whenever I hear about hell, I'm sobered up. And I'm, I'm examining myself and I'm thinking, okay, I, I know that I've believed in the gospel and I'm safe. But it's like a near-death experience for me. Have you ever had a near-death experience? You know, about five or six years ago, I was in a near-death experience in a pretty severe car accident. And I was going down sort of a windy road in Arkansas and driving around and, and a Mack dump truck 
came across the road and went into the neighborhood. And then there was another dump truck that I didn't see and he didn't see me and he didn't yield um, traffic. And it came around and all of a sudden I realized I was going to run into basically what would amount to be like a brick wall because the truck was just stopped there because he couldn't go any farther because the other truck had stopped going into the neighborhood or it was just sort of a slow process. And so I'm skidding in and screeching towards this truck, um, trying to turn the car away from the truck and decrease the impact, and I smashed into the side of it. And while I'm screeching in, you know, and and getting ready to hit the truck, I thought to myself, man, it's going to be so wonderful to meet Jesus face-to-face for the first time. No, that wasn't what I was thinking at all. What I was thinking was, what a bummer way to die. Oh, what a bummer. Oh, you know, that's that's how spiritual I was in that moment. And so I kind of I ricocheted off of the truck and spun around because I was able to jam the brakes good enough and the airbag kind of set me up and saved me. And it was a, a Saturn, just like the Saturn I drive now, so it crunched up and took the impact. And as I spun around, I set up and sort of checked my body parts and made sure I was all there and I never lost consciousness. And I thought, man, I, I'm alive. And so I, I swung the door open and, you know, I had this holy moment where I bowed down and thought, no, I didn't do that at all. I got out and turned around and went, yes, all right, I made it. And I looked and because I had spun around, I was facing this, this older couple that was in the car behind me and they were like this. <laughs> you know, just not knowing what to do with what just happened or with me who was this sort of charismatic, you know, person dancing around in the street. But as I, as I sat there, ultimately I was waiting for my family to show up. I was able to get in contact with them, and my wife showed up, and we just had Riley, Logan, and I think Emmy at that point in our van. And uh, Logan was probably about four years old. And I was sitting there, and they drove up, and I had already kind of, dismissed the fact that I almost died. You know, I was just thankful, you know, I'm okay, let's move on. And they showed up, and Logan looked at the car. He must have, because it was crunched like a tin can that had been crushed, and it was smoking, and sort of, you know, rubber was in the the air still. And he was struck by something. And so he began to, to get himself out of his car seat to get to his daddy. And there I am. I, you know, I'm, I'm kind of fret, frazzled and thinking, I don't want Logan to get hit by a car, so I'm concerned for him to stay in the van. Riley, you know, she's lost in wonder uh, over the firemen that were around. You know, there was the hazmat truck and the, the big fire truck, so she's, you know, she's oblivious but, to that. But Logan, he's getting out of his seat to get to me, to throw his arms around me and say, oh, you're safe. And you know what? That near-death experience and that moment with Logan, it, it recalibrated my thinking. It reprocessed my priorities. And I was able to say, they're what matter most. They matter most. Jesus matters most of all. Life could be taken away like that, snuffed out in a moment. And what Jesus is doing here is he's graciously warning the crowds to say, it would be better for you to spiritually incapacitate yourself than for you to go to hell. Be willing to do something dramatic with your heart because hell is at stake. Eternity is something you need to think about in terms of this sin. When Jesus says in verse 29, 
the right eye. You know what he's talking about? He's talking about something that is very precious to us. The right eye typically is the stronger eye. It's something that we want to hold on to and we don't want to lose. And Jesus is saying, in view of eternal damnation, you should be willing to gouge out your right eye and lose that as a body part instead of going to hell. It's expendable. The right eye also represents our imaginations. It's our ability to create in our minds. And in a good way, God has used the imagination to create all kinds of things, to create our worship center this morning. That, that's a product of our imaginations. I mean, you have, you have all kinds of technology that's been born through the imagination, all kinds of art and scientific discovery. I was thinking about the fact that, you know what, we've kind of already lapped um, Star Trek, right? I mean, we've got our communicators now. We talk, you know, through Skype on the screen. We see each other, right? We're living in the Jetsons age. I mean, let's just face it. I mean, and, and you walk up to the, the uh, car's grocery store and the door just opens, right? That used to fascinate me on TV. Wow, you don't even have to open the door. We live in that now because of our imagination, But in the same right, we also live in a world filled with lust and sin that's trying to capture and captivate our imaginations, right? Everything we see, all the culture, all the the media, all the commercials, it's trying to lure us and, and to cause us to lust for something that we should not have so we'll spend money on it to get it. That's what Jesus is addressing here, saying, look... Be willing to pluck out or gouge out your right eye spiritually so that you would not be in danger of hell. Or as a believer, be willing to pluck out your right eye because you have submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is Lord over heaven and hell. Origen, he was a guy who uh, was an early church father, scholar, and philosopher. He lived in... Uh, the first century, 195 to 254, and he took this passage a little bit too literally. He actually um, was, was taking it only literally where he castrated himself because of this warning in Scripture. This act was actually outlawed 75 years later, but it just reminded me of the fact that, you know what, you could literally gouge out your right eye, and you know what you have left? You have your left eye, and you could still sin with your left eye. You could poke both eyes out and be completely blinded, but still sin with your mind, right? So Jesus is not talking about uh, literally gouging out your eyes or cutting off your hand. Matthew 18, where Jesus repeated this teaching, talks about cutting off your right hand and cutting off your right foot. He's not saying for us to literally do that. But he is saying for us to spiritually be that dramatic with our sins. You say, look, I can't avoid this person at my work. I, I, can't, I can't avoid that person. It's someone who's, who's enticing for me and luring for me. I can't, you know what? To take this passage literally is to say, you know what? I'm willing to quit my job to not be near that person. And I'll just allow the Holy Spirit to fill in the blank, Right? I mean, the Holy Spirit might be filling in the blank in your mind right now where you say, you know, I don't need to be near that person. That person wants me in her heart or, or that person wants that man in her heart or vice versa. 
And you just need to say, look, I'm willing to quit my job. I'm willing to move away from a neighbor that is enticing me, that is attractive to me. That's, that's what Jesus is talking about. It's a willingness to really move away from something. And where Jesus isn't talking about literally gouging out our eyes and cutting off our, our foot, you know what he is saying? He's saying we need to deal with something on a spiritual level where it would affect the way that we do things or the way that we live our lives. So there is a physical sense here in which we would be willing to do things. Job understood this. He said, I've made a covenant with my eyes before the Lord. So how can I look upon a virgin? I've dealt with God and I've, I've, I've gone before him and submitted this to my Lord. And so how can I now look at that person? Um, 1 Corinthians 7 is where Paul was responding back to the church at Corinth. And he said, concerning the things about which you wrote to me, it's not good for a man to touch a woman. I mean, if you remember the story in Corinth, Corinth was so filled with lust and sin. It was a cesspool. Paul's saying, look, based on all the stuff that you've written to me, I would say it's really not good for you to be overly affectionate in your body. For you, you don't need to be really huggy with the women. That's what he's saying. Here in that situation, be willing to do things to limit yourself physically because you're trying to avoid lust in your heart. It's the willingness to reroute your behavior because you're dealing with something in your own life. Colossians 3, 5, and 6 is where Paul says, kill immorality, kill lust. Because why? Because the wrath of God is coming. Because God is judge and he is Lord, and that's why you'd be willing to kill something in your life. That's what he's saying. What does it look like to tear something out of your life, to, to, to tear something away, like gouging an eye out? Well, it's, it's, it's this. It's for you to incapacitate yourself on a spiritual level where you are walking into a situation as if you were blind to something. Like, for instance, if, if there's magazine racks in the store, and you know that you have a propensity to look towards those magazines in an inappropriate way and to look at something you shouldn't look at, on a heart level, you're going, Jesus, you are Lord over this moment. You are walking with me through the grocery store. You're with me. I mean, this is where the battle is. You are Lord over my life, and I am going to act as if I am literally blind to that aisle. That's what he's saying. I'm blind, so I'm not going to go there. Okay? There's a person at your workplace or in some sort of social gathering or whatever that you know is a temptation to you. And you're going to say, you know what? I am going to act as if I am incapacitated to talk with that person. It's as if I'm cutting off my right hand and my right foot, and I'm going to reroute myself away from that person. That's what he's talking about. That's how dramatic Jesus is being regarding this sin. We, we, we cut off our hands when we say, you know what, I know that the internet is a temptation and I want to click on this site to see something. I'm willing to cut my hand off and act as if I don't have the capacity to touch the mouse right now and click on it. I can't do that. I need other people around me that, that would be accountable, that would keep me accountable as I'm on the internet. 
You know, you, you, you face the internet in places where other people will see what you're doing while you're online, right? And you do that as a rerouting because you're taking the sin so seriously and, and you're acting as if I, I can't click on the mouse right now because I'm not held accountable in this situation. And so I'm rerouting myself away from that sin. That's what he's talking about. If your right eye causes you to sin, it's really the heart that's causing you to sin, but he's saying be willing to take physical action on yourself with your life as you are under the lordship of Christ. And in doing so, you'll defeat it. The only bullet to kill the the sin of lust is the lordship of Christ. And only when you're under the lordship of Christ will you sense God's power in these temptations. He's the Lord of eternity. And he's the Lord over our imaginations, isn't he? And when you're right with the Lord and your imagination is filled with the things of God, that's what Jesus is saying, or Paul is saying in Colossians 3.1. He's saying, lift your focus up into heaven. When your gaze is heavenward, then there's joy. There's joy. He says also in verse 30, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Right hand here is the most valuable body part that we have typically. It's the, it's the right arm, the stronger arm, what we use to work with and create with and do things with. Jesus sits at the Father's right hand, which is a symbol of strength. And we need to be willing to give up physical strength, things that we think are our right to do for the sake of holiness. You'd be surprised, I, I think, maybe you wouldn't, of where people are really willing to go, what people are really willing to view on TV or in the movie theater, right? It takes a dramatic, deliberate effort to reroute those kinds of choices. And we must. We want to because the Lord has changed our hearts to want to. We're willing to fling it away from us. That's what he's saying here. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. And not only cut it off, throw it away from you. Get some distance between you and that temptation, between you and that habit, that physical thing that you're doing. Build some distance between you and that. I've been in a lot of situations where I've counseled people where they've gotten the the willingness and the courage to confess a sin habit, like being involved in internet pornography or being involved in an inappropriate relationship or having an adulterous affair in their heart with someone where that person doesn't even know what's going on, but it's happening in, in that person's heart. I've had people come to me and talk to me about that. And what I do is then I take that person... And I I try to build a bridge between that person and their spouse. And you know what? That's, That's actually a very good way to go about this kind of confession. For you to go to someone that you trust, perhaps a spiritual leader, perhaps an intimate friend, where you can confess your sin to that person and then go with that person and meet with your spouse and begin to confess and pour your heart out to your spouse and say, you know what? I love you. I'm committed to you for life. Our commitment is, is as far as I'm concerned, is, is based on the foundation of our vows at the altar. But I need to tell you what's going on in my heart. 
I've been confessing it to this brother in the Lord, or you know, if it's if if it's the wife, the wife saying I've I've confessed this to this this gal or this pastor, and and now we're coming to to make things right, for our marriage to be made whole again. That's perhaps a way to do this. You know, when I say, and I mentioned this before, when I say, look, you need to be willing to limit yourself from where you'll go or what you'll do or who you'll talk with. I really am. I'm trusting that the Holy Spirit is bringing to your minds right now applications, names, places, habits, and that you'll deal with these things in your heart before the Lord because that's where it all begins. The seed of adultery is lust, and the seed for joy is found in repentance. So you've got to deal with the lust in the heart first, and then you can have the joy of forgiveness and holiness. Again, for us as believers, we know that there is no condemnation and that God has rescued us, and so we're not going to hell, but we want to treat this very seriously and recognize that Jesus' lordship is where we find deliverance. All right, here's some take-home points. First of all, as we take this a little bit closer to heart, the heart, Jesus is equating lust with adultery. And you know what this means? This means that everyone is guilty of this sin. Everyone has been touched by this sin. It's a sin of covetousness. It's a sin of wanting something or someone that you should not have. It's a sin where a woman might say, you know what, that man, he makes me feel a certain way that my husband doesn't make me feel like. That person, that person draws me to himself. That's this sin. You know, as a teenager, it's the same thing that's going on with, with young people, young girls, young boys, college students. It's all over the place. Everyone is guilty Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and what? Fall short of the glory of God. We're all guilty. But because we know we're all guilty, everyone has hope to be delivered. 1 Corinthians 10.13, one of the greatest lead-in verses to use in a counseling situation. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. Everybody's dealing with this, but... When you call sin, sin, you can find hope. And in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, Paul says there is a way of escape. There's a path of endurance that you can walk out of this sin through. Number two, simplify your solution for lust. And that is submission to Jesus' lordship. Simplify your solution to lust, submitting to Jesus' lordship. You have to yield what you view to Jesus. You have to. You have to yield what you look at, what you're willing to view. You submit it to the Lord. And then secondly, you have to yield where you go to Jesus. Just give it up. Give it up. Say, I, you know, I could never sell my house because I have a problem with my name. Really? I mean, Exodus, when, when in the book of Exodus, chapter 20, which just you studied just a few years ago, when it talks about coveting or committing adultery, the commentary that Moses gives there is talking about not going after your neighbor's wife. I mean, it's just clear in the Old Testament and it's brought to the New Testament. You had to be willing to relocate yourself. 
You yield what you look at and where you go. And then for the unbeliever, consider the cost of lust and flee. You're fleeing hell and you're fleeing to Christ. All right, number three. Consider what you gain with your purity. This is where I want to sort of leave you with hope. If you yield to the Lordship of Christ and walk in the Spirit and you begin to see victory over this sin, your wife or your spouse will sense the purity in your life. Secondly, your children will sense your joy. There'll be new freedom in your household. They'll sense that you have time for them. They'll see the light in your eyes because you're free. Your co-workers will sense the integrity in your life. They'll trust you more. It perhaps could mean advancement in your career where you've never talked about it with anybody where you work, but they just sense that you're a whole person. You're not a shell of a person anymore. And they they trust you. It builds trust and, and people give you greater responsibility when you're pure. Also, possibly ministries could open up in the church. You say, look, I've already committed adultery, I've disqualified myself, or I'm, I'm this basket case, you know, behind closed doors, you don't know how filthy I am. Well, look, watch this. The gospel is real and works. If you repent of your sin and build a pattern of faithfulness where you surround yourself with accountability, you know, the sky is the limit for how the Lord might use you. And there are so many ways that the Lord can use you where if you've been delivered, all of a sudden you're counseling someone saying, you know what? You think it's hopeless? It's not hopeless. Let me tell you a story about where I was three years ago or two years ago or five years ago, how I was delivered, how I was made whole. Let me tell you that story. And you watch their eyes open up and you watch tears fall down from their face on their faces and they're made whole too by what? The power of the gospel. You know how I know the gospel is real? Because the gospel is real not just in my salvation, the gospel is real in my Christian walk. That's what continues to flood confidence in the gospel in my heart because the gospel is alive in me today. That's what church is all about. That's what we're doing here. That's why we need to hear these hard words so that we can be released into ministry as we are walking in grace together. Let's bow for prayers. We approach the Lord's table. Father, I thank you for this word. I thank you for this morning. And I pray, God, as we approach the Lord's table, it would be a warning to us to examine ourselves. As I said before, if someone is repenting even now, I want them to participate in the Lord's table. This is obviously an open table to all believers, and we just pray that we would examine ourselves and know that our confidence is only in the gospel. We know also that the symbols here, they are not redemptive. They just represent the redemption that's found in the sacrifice of Christ alone. We thank you that, Jesus, you died on the cross. You did something dramatic with your body on the cross for our sin so that we could be delivered. And so, God, with great gratitude, with joy and exhilaration, we participate now in the Lord's table. In Jesus' name, amen. As the men come forward to prepare to give out the wafer,